0: Welcome to the Power Hour. I'm Adrienne Herbert, wellness coach, international speaker and author. Each week I speak to a variety of guests from business founders to Olympic athletes, leading coaches, changemakers, and innovators to find out their daily habits, their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day. Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Wow, it is almost the end of another year. Now, I know that this time of year typically can be very busy. We have social plans, work things to do, kids have a lot going on, and it can be pretty overwhelming, can be stressful, can feel like a lot of pressure. So, first thing to say is that whatever you are doing this week, whether it's Christmas parties, Christmas nativities, Christmas shopping whatever you're doing this week try and take a little bit of time if you can take an hour take a power hour to do something for yourself something that is nourishing something fun something that is restful or re-energizing take that time before the end of the year I myself you might be able to hear my voice I'm just recovering from a whole week of being ill this is what happens when you live with three small children in december it is inevitable but i'm hoping that by next week i am going to be back 100 fighting fit and feeling great so, today's episode is the best of 2023, part one on the Power Hour. And you're going to hear from Viv Groskop. I recorded with Viv earlier this year and I absolutely loved this conversation. We talk about self confidence. We talk about happy, high status, which is Viv's latest book. We talk about what it means to be happy, high status, to be more confident, to overcome imposter syndrome. It is an incredible, it was just such a great conversation. And I felt so empowered by the end of that. one hour I felt like I could take on the world. You'll also hear from Dr Anders Hansen. Now in this episode we talked about happiness and about what it really means to live a life that is not only happy but to feel content and the psychology of happiness and contentment which I thought was really really interesting. You'll also hear from Thomas Curran. Now we talked about the perfectionist trap and perfectionism, how perfectionism shows up in our lives, what it is, why we sometimes think perfectionism is a good thing when actually it can be very detrimental to our well-being, to our physical and mental health and how it is a trap that we should try to avoid. And last but not least, Dr. Chris Van Tulliken. Now, in April, I recorded this episode with Dr. Chris, and it is, I think, one of the most popular episodes on the Power Hour this year because we were talking all about ultra-processed foods. Now, I basically said after recording this episode, I said to anyone, friends, family, social media, I said, listen, if you eat bread, you need to listen to this episode. If you buy, If you go to... I'm not going to say the specific brand, but if you go and you buy your lunch out every day, then maybe listen to this episode and people really, really enjoyed it. It's all about ultra processed food and the impact that that has on our physical and mental well being. So let's dive in to the best of 2023 part one. So, Simply, my first question, Viv, is how do you or how should we define confidence?
1: Well, I define it as happy high status, which is why I chose that title for this book. And obviously, the expression happy high status, three separate words, it's not an expression that anybody really knows. Mm. Um, So it sounds like a very weird thing to choose. I first came across this expression more than 10 years ago when I was first doing stand-up comedy. So for the first part of my career through my twenties and early thirties, I was a journalist for places like the Guardian and the Observer and the Financial Times. And then in my mid thirties, I had three small children. I was having a bit of a wobble as a freelancer. It was just after the financial crash of 2008 when there's a lot of advertising going out of print media just before everyone started being on social media really and I had this real moment of thinking what I've planned for my life which is just to be a journalist really it's not going to exist soon (laughs) and it's all going wrong (laughs) and I've got these three kids and how am I going to make sure that I have a you know good life as I get older and I also realized as I was telling my kids as they were growing up to do what they want with their lives and not listen to other people that I hadn't entirely listened to that myself so I had this kind of like mini midlife crisis when I was about 35 36 and I discovered stand-up as part of that because when I was a child I loved drama I loved acting I loved showing off singing always been a total karaoke hogger Pog the microphone at karaoke. I secretly want to be Jane McDonald. Basically, that is she. She is living my parallel life, An icon. and she's she's doing it brilliantly. Um, so I always had this other side of me that I hadn't really properly acknowledged, and started messing around with it. But it became more and more serious and I ended up kind of switching careers and doing a lot of comedy and started hosting book tours for people like Dawn French and Joe Brand. Um, You know, through a lot of contacts I had in journalism, really, I got a quick entry into that world. So all the time when I was first doing stand-up, I was nervous and I wasn't entirely confident, although I am quite a confident person. You have to project such a massive confidence or at least confidence. You don't, you know, lots of comedians, their act is to be insecure or to be mm. like weird or a freaky or whatever. So it's not necessarily a straightforward confidence, but you need to really look as if you know what you're doing. And I very quickly came across this concept that's called happy high status. So in improv comedy, which is things like, um, whose Line Is It Anyway? They do lots of improv on Saturday Night Live. Tina Fey is schooled uh, in that school of comedy. It's it's part of an American tradition. It's also a British tradition. And it came out of the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And this guru uh, who recently died, actually, Keith Johnston, founded these ideas about status on stage. And status on stage is Or even on screen, you can think about it like in terms of succession, like succession is a great way to think about it. So you've got this family, the father is clearly like the top dog, and then you've got these four siblings who are all vying for his attention. Sometimes they're up, sometimes they're down. And their status is not necessarily about their status in terms of their wealth. Like in Succession, they're all wealthy. Mm. Their status is about their emotional and psychological status in relation to each other. So this concept of status in comedy, in screen, in fiction, in all kinds of storytelling is really about who's up, who's down. And a lot of that is connected to confidence. So how confident are you to approach somebody who is supposedly... Intimidating or more senior than you? Um, How confident are you when somebody comes up to you who's very needy and needs something and is putting you in a position of authority? Mm. And the idea of happy high status is that you get yourself into a zone where you're not overly confident and you're not trying to dominate other people, but you're not underconfident either. So if people asked you to lead or they needed you to lead, You could. Mm. So it's a very kind of balanced way of holding your ego in check, being confident, but not in that kind of superficial stereotypical way of confidence that you so brilliantly described that we've all often grown up with from childhood. It's like confident people. Oh, they talk really loudly. They take up all the space in the room. They're really annoying. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Happy high status is moving away from that stereotype and asking, what does it look like if you're comfortable in your status, in your way that you move through the world, in how you're feeling today? What does that look like? The happy part is not like happy, happy, smiley, everything's great. It means more like balanced or relaxed. So typical examples of people in the public eye who I think have this in spades uh, george clooney typical example michelle obama barack obama uh, julia roberts another great example um, sometimes not great to talk about celebrities in in relation to this because we can then think oh well it's easy to be happy high status if you're george clooney i mean for goodness sake but it gives you an exa- an uh, idea like a visual idea of what it means like to look relaxed in yourself mm-hmm. you know in french they have the expression bien dans sa peau well in your skin bien mm. dans sa peau and there's a lot of expressions in different languages that since the book has come out i've i've heard like there's an expression in italian which is called sprezzatura which again means like being comfortable in yourself
0: we, we recognize so, it when we see it don't we we recognize it yeah. in others, and when we don't see it i think we can often feel uncomfortable as well we recognize both people that are up, that do have happy high status and sometimes i think those who who really feel flustered or they have self-doubt and all of those things and it can make you feel uncomfortable
1: yeah the other way i use uh to help people visualize this is if you're comfortable with the idea of Buddhism or yoga or meditation, this is like a kind of active Zen. So you are Zen in yourself, you know, you're, you're feeling, you're neutral. You're waiting to see what's going to happen. You're open to things. Um, The other way of thinking about it that I use a lot is to think the opposite of petty. Mm. So when we are petty, we are not happy high status. We're like looking for somebody who's slighted us. We're looking for every little kind of snarky remark or, oh, that person looked at me funny, <laughs> right? Yep. That's the opposite of this. So you, sometimes, it, sometimes I will think to myself, okay, what is the happy high status response in this situation? Or how can I be more happy high status today? Mm. Um, and sometimes I'll think, okay, what is the least petty response? Or sometimes to ask yourself, what is the most generous response? And I'm not suggesting that this is a state of being that you would manage to be in all of the time. Nobody can do that. Not even Michelle Obama. Right. Um, Very interestingly, if you watch the Netflix documentary on Michelle Obama, when she is between moments of being public and being happy high status in front of other people, she listens to music So when she's traveling between speaking engagements or TV interviews, she listens to music really loudly on her phone Mm. and she just relaxes and chills out. Uh, So she isn't trying to be happy high status all of the time. She's giving herself a break and she's recharging. So we can't be this all of the time. Um, For example, I am not this all of the time. Last night I was at the British Podcast Awards and my podcast was nominated for a a best business podcast and we didn't win. Hmm. And I immediately felt myself being petty when we (laughs) we didn't win because I'm very competitive and I always want to win everything. And I just think, i mean i don't literally think it only counts if you win of course i don't think that but i don't believe the platitude of like oh it's the taking part that counts no it's not like, you no, try to win yeah. and so i feel this sort of little anger and a little gremlin inside me you know wanting to express this like a petulant child and i kept thinking viv come on you need to be happy high status you need to show grace mm-hmm. you need to show generosity but another part of me was thinking well no actually it's okay to be human just like be angry for half an hour, have a little bitch to yourself inside your head. Like, don't let it out because other people don't want to see that it's ugly. <laughs> okay? so you, weren't, you weren't booing so, from your seat then. No, so I didn't have like a tantrum, <laughs> but I just recognized to myself like, it's okay to, to be petty now and again. Mm. But, but most of the time, it's really going to benefit you and everyone around you if you try to incorporate more moments of this idea of happy high status. And I hope, as you suggested already, that this offers people a reset it offers them a new way of thinking about confidence that is evidenced, you mm. know, from these ideas of drama and stage and screen. So we, 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 already, we recognize happy high status and status because we're reading it all the time. Mm. Anytime that we watch a drama of any kind or comedy of any kind, we're using these status ideas. We're schooled in them without realizing. So once you start to recognize this and see this everywhere, it becomes easier to embody it yourself Mm. and you also start to move away from these stereotypical ideas of confidence that are often I think so toxic and hold us back and they're so rooted in things that we've been told as children you know like don't speak too loudly or you've got fun I've heard so many people say to me they've been told there's something weird about their voice or that they're they don't, their accent is wrong or whatever. And it's it's never true. Hmm. You know, most people, like I would say, I don't think I've ever met anybody that I've thought your voice is ugly and you need to change it. It's interesting
0: because some- I get, a, I would I would like to guess that many of those people are women. I think it's often women Tasty. that are told to change their voice. So I've heard women say before that they've actively tried to make their voice deeper or softer or less shrill. And it's quite interesting feedback, isn't it? For someone to think the tone of your voice is the tone of your voice. I think there's other things we can think about if you speak really quickly when you're nervous. You know, slowing you down your speech is, is maybe different. But I think, yeah, the, the tone of your voice or, or another, I think, misconception that people probably have heard about confidence is that it's a personality trait and it's the same as extroversion and that, oh, for example, myself, I'm an extrovert, so therefore people assume That means you're confident and that confidence and extroversion applies to all areas of your life. Whereas in my experience, I'd say I'm very confident in certain settings where I feel capable. I feel, I suppose, as you would say, happy, high status, and I know exactly what those scenarios are where I feel that. But I do not feel that in other situations and scenarios, and I actually find it difficult great question for you to transfer that feeling or that skill or that happy high status into an environment or a scenario or a relationship uh, dynamic where you know that you don't feel that and you, you mentioned the succession characters and of course if anyone has seen it you know this jostling between different dynamics of power and status can be exhausting it can be debilitating and I think certain relationships and certain people can almost bring that out in us and diminish we we can feel our confidence diminish and if you recognize actually every time i have an interaction with that person why do i find myself shrinking i think it's it's um yeah it's a really complex one What, what advice would you give for for me or for anyone else listening who thinks okay in this setting i really want to take that happy high status feeling over here but i struggle to do that
1: yeah i like using this idea of what i call overlay So, I used to use this sometimes when I was first starting to do stand up, of trying to get a feeling very deep in my body um, through breathing, through using my memory, through visualization, through meditation. It doesn't have to take very long. You can do this for like three, five minutes. Um, I used to use an app a lot that's called Budify that takes you through, so um, I think the app Headspace also does a similar thing. It takes you through a guided meditation that just lets you calm down. So you then have these feelings in your body of calm, of neutrality, of not expecting anything or needing anything that very relaxed feeling that we have when we are maybe in nature when we're with people who we don't have to pretend anything with them like good friends good uh, you know family can be a difficult one because we're often a lot of us triggered by (laughs) difficult family members so just think about like the family members who do make you feel really relaxed or the friends who make you feel really relaxed situations where you're just there's no pressure and you're just yourself. You're not trying to be anything. And actually thinking and feeling what it is in your body, to be that where is that in your body a lot of us don't take the time and I've done a lot of work with different groups of people experimenting with this and it's in different places for different people I'm sure people who do yoga and meditation will will know this because they're in that state a lot but for some people that's that feeling of calm in their stomach or they might feel very grounded through their feet or they might feel like their heart feels very centered or they might feel like their head feels light in a good way and mm. uh, it's a feeling of being grounded so being more physical taking things out of your mind and putting it into your body and i mean i'm not saying there's any science in this by the way this is purely stuff that i have observed and used in my own performance right i'm sure you could i'm sure you could invent science around this but i don't think you necessarily need to mm. if like if it resonates with you great yeah. um so take that feeling and think what would it be like if i could feel a part of that in a very pressurized situation mm. and just planting the seed of that idea sometimes is enough sometimes you need to do something practical to overlay that feeling so i would sometimes do breathing ahead of a difficult moment or a pressurized moment so like i had one a gig sort of quite early on in my stand up time where I was booked for a three night residency somewhere. The first night went really badly. The second night went slightly better, but really not good enough better. And I had like a third chance. And I was just like, if this doesn't, if I don't crack it on this third night, this is really not good. And so I did these breathing exercises and meditation (laughs) and I made sure that my breathing pattern was for something like, you know, four breaths in, four counts in, six counts out, that I did the same just before I went on stage. So I was trying to replicate and overlay relaxed feelings, relaxed habits from an unpressured situation into a pressured situation. And sometimes I think just the act of Having thought about that, having made space for it, having acknowledged the fact that this is not to do with you being not a good enough person or you not being in the right place or some kind of sign from the universe that you're rubbish and should just give up in whatever situation you're in. It's all to do with our physical physiological reactions to pressure, right. yeah. which are just completely natural and normal. And very often under pressure, all that we're experiencing is a flood of adrenaline in our body. Yeah. And we experience this as, oh no, run away. <laughs> and really we should experience it as, oh wow, I'm alive.
2: Well, if you look on... If you Google the word happiness, you will get more than nine hundred million results, and there seems to be as many versions of of what happiness is. Uh, many look at happiness as feeling good all the time, basically. Uh, and if you if you if you think that is happiness, then you will dis- be disappointed because that's not not how the brain works. We are not built to feel good all the time. The brain never evolved to be. To be happy it didn't evolve to be creative or intelligent it, it evolved to uh, keep us alive to take us to tomorrow alive so uh feelings of to feel good is something that should be short-term uh, otherwise we would not be motivated to carry on and to not be motivated was meant death for 99 percent of all humans of, of all uh, previous generations of humans so to, to feel good uh, all the time, that's completely unrealistic. Uh, and But I look at happiness as ha- having a good, uh, thinking that your life has a positive, a good long-term um, direction. That you're doing something that contributes. And that's that's the definition of happiness that is often used in psychiatric research. And that's, I think it's important that you have such a definition, because if you think that happiness means that you will feel good all the time, then you will compare yourself against a goal that is completely unrealistic. We are not built that way, uh, but we are led to believe that in advertisement and so on. I I know that Coca-Cola had a, an ad where they said, open up to happiness or open happiness and the message that they're sending to billions of people is that happiness is something that you choose and if you don't feel it then there's something wrong with you mm. and you know that's the problem uh, you you compare yourself to a goal that is completely unrealistic and i think a better advertisement would be to, to say that it, it's okay to feel down all the time sometimes mm-hmm. it's okay to feel crappy because then you com- would compare yourself to a goal that is actually realistic but such a phrase uh, would not probably not sell so many uh, soft drinks so we will not see that but co- the modern view of happiness is in most cases completely unrealistic mm-hmm. uh, and we pay a price for that
0: you, you mentioned a word then that i wanted to pause on you said choose you said we're told that happiness is something that we choose now I'd love you to kind of correct me, I guess, on where I'm going wrong, because I sometimes have thought that in the past I've thought, you know, I've listened to a lot of, uh, a lot of speakers, a lot of audio books and things on this topic. And I've kind of thought about that as about perspective and about, you know, you choose to see mm. the world in this way, or you choose to focus on positive things, or, you know, as you said, if you're feeling crappy, if you're feeling down, we all have challenges in life. Maybe your job is stressful. Maybe your kids aren't behaving. Maybe you have an ill parent. And sometimes, you we, we can feel like, you know what? I just need to be more grateful or I just need to be more optimistic and I have to choose happiness. So yeah, am I getting that wrong in terms of trying to cultivate a mindset that is that is optimistic when maybe that's not helpful?
2: I, I mean, of, of course that can, that can be important. Uh, no question about that, but it's not that simple really. It goes back to what I said about the brain. It, it never evolved to be happy or smart. It do evolved to take us to tomorrow alive. And the most important thing I never learned about the brain in med school was that it has not changed during the last 10,000 years. We are still adapted to life as hunters and gatherers. And for 99.9% of all the time of, on the planet for humanity, half of all humans died before they became teenagers and they did not die from what we die to from today such as cancer and cardiovascular disease they died from infections bleeding murder and accidents starvation those were the things that killed people and we are the descendants of the ones who did not die from that of course because we have behind us an unbroken line of survivors and that means that we have in us in our brains and in our bodies put defense mechanisms against the things that killed us in the past. And one such defense mechanism is to see the world as dangerous, because this was a terribly dangerous world that that, that shaped us. And to see danger everywhere helped you survive. It helped you to prepare for the worst. To see danger everywhere today, that's what we call anxiety. Mm. Uh, and from this perspective it's not surprising that people have anxiety. what is surprising is that there are some people who don't have anxiety and maybe they should be diagnosed <laughs> um, and what and when I say that to my patients, some of them say that I really get it now I am not damaged I am not broken uh, I'm not damaged goods so to speak so if you contact the way you view, uh, Anxiety or stress is very important because you can, it, it can make you seem like a broken person, damaged, or it can be seen as something completely normal. And that's why it's so important to learn about the brain if you want to understand your mental life. Uh, and you will also understand that things like oh be, think positively and be calm and happy and so on. Such cliches, you know. They don't work most of the time because evolution builds much stronger mechanisms uh, than than uh, ones that can be just fooled around by some simple cliches. Mm. It isn't that simple. So uh, I'm not saying that uh, you shouldn't cultivate a positive view. You should, of course, but you should also learn about our biology and learn that the things that we call anxiety and depressive episodes are defense mechanisms that shows that we are functioning they don't show that we are broken mm-hmm. if you have if they cause you a lot of problems you should seek help because seeking help is a sign of of strength Uh, And you don't say to a diabetic, for instance, pull up your blood sugar. Mm -hmm. You just don't do that. So you can't say to a person who's suffering from a depression, pull yourself up or think positive things or whatever. It's not that simple. Mm -hmm. so So we have to break the stigma and realize that we are not built to feel good all the time.
0: Yeah, and I think that is incredibly powerful when you describe it like that, comparing it to a, a physical health complaint. Uh, so much of mental health and mental illness, as you described, is is spoken about in that way, which makes us think that we have the the capabilities to to change it, and that we we have to do it ourselves, and it's it's, it's about us, and we have to fix it, and that I think is 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 very problematic. So. For anyone listening in there, maybe thinking, okay, I know a little bit about mental health and mental illness, and they try to do a routine and daily habits and things to support that. So for example, getting adequate sleep or, you know, exercising regularly, or, you know, listening to music that they like, but we all have ups and downs. And, you know, I recently, I recently heard somebody describing, I thought it was brilliant. They talked about the vibration frequency and you know how you might've seen online. Sometimes people have this phrase, good vibes only. Have you seen that before?
2: No, I haven't.
0: Oh, well, I've seen this quite a lot. Sometimes I think it was an Instagram thing. People would say, oh, good vibes only. And it means like, you know, we're only going to allow good energy, you know, happy, happy people, like good vibes, no stress, no drama. Um, So the sentiment, I think, is nice. But essentially what he said was, if you think about vibration, you know, with music or anything, you can't have only the up vibration. If something goes up, down, up, down, up, down, that's what vibration is. That's what energy is. That's what frequency is. So this idea that we could have good vibes only, we can only have up in life. You know, it's not possible. We have to have up, we have to have down. But also sometimes people feel as though they're stuck in the down. You know, they might feel like every single day they are stuck, they're unhappy. So if someone is experiencing that right now and they feel stuck, they feel like they're stuck in the down, do you have any, I suppose, where should people start with something actionable that they could do maybe today, maybe a daily practice to start to shift out of that feeling of feeling stuck in the down?
2: Yes. Uh, and I mean, if, if you are stuck uh, feeling down, that's a depression um, or a, could be a mild depression. It could be a severe depression, but you should seek help for it. That's my first advice. And there are different forms of help. Cognitive therapy is very good. We know that exercise is incredibly important for mood regulation, uh, but it's very difficult to exercise if you feel down, of course. Uh, and and we also know that, um, we, we know that antidepressant medication works. Uh, so, so so my main advice there is is to seek help but the point that you make is so important that we can't feel good all the time because the brain wants to motivate us to do, th- to do things and why is this well we are still adapted to life like hunters and gatherers and let's assume that one of our ancestors was climbing a tree to pick some bananas and then she managed to do that and get those and she ate the bananas she felt happy and she felt good. Now, how long could she do feel good? Well, not too long, because if she felt good for two months, then she would starve to death. She would not continue striving for, for any new bananas. So positive feelings should, by definition, be short-term to motivate us because that's uh, the, the, our feelings are motivations. That's the brain's tools for motivating us to do things that kept us alive and helped us reproduce in a setting that we used to live not in today's world Um, so it's so the and, and the consequence of this is that the brain wants to really remain in balance if you push the dopamine system this the reward system in the brain too, uh, too much it will adapt to that and it will stop producing its own dopamine and the dopamine receptors that the dopamine plugs into in the brain and there will be fewer of them so the brain realizes that well, I, g- I get all this dopamine from the outside by my smartphone or by uh, alcohol or cocaine or whatever and then it stops producing its own and it starts to expect this high level and it would it doesn't get that everything feels incredibly boring So the consequence of this is what was great yesterday is something that you expect today and something that will be not enough tomorrow. So that's another reason why you should perhaps be a bit moderate on how much pleasure you seek. Because if you seek it too much, too intensely, it will backfire. All hedonism will unfortunately lead to anhedonia.
0: I think the best place to start actually would be to discuss. So the title of the book, Ultra Process People, I'd really love if you could define for us what ultra processed food is, because I think some people might be surprised. Often the assumption about ultra processed food is that it's just junk food. So high sugar, high fat foods, such as ice cream or deep fried chicken. Mm-hmm. And it's fair to assume that most people know when they eat these kind of foods that they're highly processed, but they might not consider that their breakfast granola is ultra processed or that their lunchtime salad wrap might be ultra processed. So I think it's the best place to start. Could you tell us what is the definition? definition of an ultra processed food
4: so it's such a great point because so much of it is obvious junk but there's masses of ultra processed food that is organic uh, it's associated with weight loss it's low fat it's ethical it's uh allegedly good for us um there's a very long formal definition which you can look up on the united nations food and agriculture organization website um but it boils down to this if it's wrapped in plastic and it contains at least one ingredient that you don't typically find in a domestic kitchen, like an emulsifier, or a colorant, or a flavoring. Um, then it is an ultra-processed food. So it's it's that's it's a pretty straightforward way of looking at it. You just go to the supermarket, look at the ingredients, and if there's something there you don't recognise, then it is UPF
0: yeah and i think it's pretty shocking actually that often we don't really know what is in the foods that we eat because when you describe it like that you say okay if you, if you open it out of a packet it's probably processed and people might think yeah but i don't eat that much ultra processed food but honestly when you start reading the book and you start breaking it down you realize you probably eat more ultra processed food than you think so for example if you read the ingredients of the back of something and the ingredients are listed it's pretty useless if you don't know what you're reading so for example if it says modified starch or like you said emulsifier or hydrogenated oil if you don't know what modified starch is or emulsifier is then how can we make an informed decision about whether or not we should be eating it,
4: it that's a that's such an important point i mean my, a really good rule of thumb is if you don't know what it is then it's almost certainly an ultra processed ingredient and the, there's a really important thing here to separate out processed food, which is fine, and ultra-processed food. So I think of this in terms of um, milk. If we start with milk, milk is a whole food. You can drink it straight out of the cow or the goat or the sheep, wherever you get your milk. And that's, that's what we call a whole food. Now you can process it into cheese or butter, and those, those products are fine as well. They're not associated with diet-related disease. The, the science is clear that cheese and butter are, are fine. You can ultra process your butter into margarine. And this is what ultra processed food is. It's fake versions of real food. Mm. So processing is fine. Humans have been processing food, which includes cooking, grinding, extracting, uh, frying, uh uh, pounding grinding all that is processing we've been doing it for over a million years it's it's a really important part of our diet in fact humans can't survive without processing food we we have to cook our food you can't live on raw food Um, and there's a lot of a lot of people have tried and you can't do it (laughs) Um, but ultra processing is a set of industrial processes some of them are physical so you're grinding and extruding food some of them are thermal you cook things at high temperature or you bleach refine them hydrogenate them lots of them are chemical and then you you take those foods that have been processed and you add lots and lots of additives to make them edible and, and more palatable and so ultra processed food the purpose of it is profit and that that is in that very long formal scientific definition is this is food not about nourishing the human body it's about generating profit for the transnational food corporations. And that that's important.
2: Mm,
0: yeah, very important. And We're gonna come on to talk about that a little bit later on, actually, when it comes to, yeah, why there's so much ultra processed food in the food system, why it is, you know, we'll talk about the cost part, but forgive me if this seems like an obvious question, but why should people be, you know, people listening to this podcast right now, why should they be concerned about how much ultra processed food is in their diet? So is it the problem that, there's an absence of whole foods in your diet, or mm. is it the presence of ultra-processed food that causes an issue?
4: So that that is a question that people have worked really, really hard to answer. What what we the, the definition of ultra-processed food was was it was it was developed as a hypothesis uh, about thirteen years ago by a team in Brazil in 2010, and the hypothesis that what they were trying to do was describe the set of industrial foods that seem to be driving diet-related disease. So that's strokes, heart attacks, metabolic disease like type two diabetes and early death as well as loss of cancers. And so this they came up with this definition. And then over the last decade, we've done a huge amount of research trying to figure out it was the, was the hypothesis true? Is ultra processed food associated with disease and death? And the studies are really, really clear that the association is very, very strong. So that in 2019, we realized there was a study that came out in the Lancet where we realized that diet was the leading cause of early death on earth for human beings. It had overtaken Mm -hmm. tobacco. And ultra processed food is the way of defining what a poor diet is. And when we look at the data from the big population studies, it's not simply that this food is fatty and salty and sugary. And it's not simply that this food is displacing real food from the diet. It is partly that it is that this food itself is harmful um, and it's harmful in a huge number of different ways.
0: Well, I think it's interesting to highlight that because if I think about myself anecdotally, I knew that I was going to be having this conversation with you today. And as I said, reading the book recently, thinking about, okay, what things am I buying, especially when you're traveling because you're not in your own kitchen and cooking. So anecdotally, the reason I ask is because yesterday I was thinking, okay, what have I eaten today? And how much of the food I'm eating is whole food? How much of it's ultra processed? And yeah, is it kind of the case that, okay, if it's five to one is that a good ratio so i'll start Mm. off like in the morning i won't bore you with my entire day of what i ate but no do it well in the morning i got up i had a banana really early i think it was before maybe before six o'clock had a banana fine about two hours later uh, i knew that me and my husband were going to be going out for a run we're doing the london marathon very soon um it was a short run and i thought actually i'm really hungry i'm going to have a decent breakfast so i had a fried egg with some rocket half an avocado and a seeded bagel. So before 10 a.m, I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, okay, banana, whole food, Uh, the egg, like you say processed because I fried it, rocket great avocado great and then the the bagel which is seeded is uh ultra processed food right so i'm looking at that and thinking it's kind of like yeah six to one five to one whatever if i continued my entire day as i said i won't bore you with it but in the evening i had you know a glass of red wine i had some salted pistachios i had these wasabi crackers that i got in japan they're ultra processed and I was trying to yeah trying to like balance it out and that's why I asked you about this is it the absence of fr- so for example if someone says well it's fine Adrienne because you eat fruits and vegetables and you eat you know protein mm. and you eat all these things and you cook your food f- from scratch most of the time so what if there's an ultra processed bagel or a few biscuits or and so yeah is that kind of is there a ratio people can figure it out or is it the case that actually all ultra processed food is bad and having it in your diet is going to cause issues for you so I think different
4: listeners need different answers. There may be people, I'm guessing you, you know your demographic and I'm guessing your, your audience is a pretty health motivated group who probably mm. aren't eating a huge amount of ultra processed food. However, there will be people who are listening who are living with obesity or living with overweight or living with other diet related disease. Um, mm. And for those people, it may be helpful to think of ultra-processed food as a set of broadly addictive substances. And this was my relationship with it. So I have all the genetic risk factors for obesity. I have an identical twin who lived with significant obesity for a long time. and so, and I found that there are certain ultra process products that I had a really problem relationship with. You know, I'd spend time thinking about them. It was, I'd I'd go and spend a lot of money on them. I would eat them to vast excess in spite of knowing they were bad for me. So for me, it's been really easy to go, look, I'm just not going to eat this. I, for me, it's like alcohol is to someone who has a problem with alcohol addiction or cigarettes mm. to a smoker. But there are plenty of people with alcohol, who can go and have a couple of glasses of wine a week. Some people can smoke a few cigarettes on a, a, you know, on a, on a, on a Friday night and not think about them on a Monday morning. So those people, I think we have to be really careful when we're talking about this. There are some people who are going to find it useful to be abstinent and other people who, you know what, you're having the old chocolate bar, don't sweat about it any more than you would sweat about having a glass of beer or, 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 I mean, I don't, I don't want to, Ever say that a cigarette is fine, but the, the data shows that if you're gonna smoke one cigarette a week for a few years in your early 20s, it's you know, it's the addiction is the problem, not not mm. the single, not the single item. So it's 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 very much different approaches for different people. In in your case, I mean you're someone who I'd be like, you should not be neurotic about this, right? Like I've I've listened to your podcast, I've followed what you do, I've seen interviews with you, I know you're a runner. The fact that you ate an ultra-processed bagel, it's it's not going <laughs> to dramatically change your microbiome or affect your marathon performance, and it may also. It's worth saying, did you check the ingredients on that bagel? Is it like, do you know that it was ultra-processed, or because you can buy bagels that are, are fine, mm. they are just wheat and water
0: yeah i did yeah i did especially as i said because i knew having this conversation with you it wasn't from my local bakery i won't say the, okay. the brand but it was you know lots of different ingredients on there and i buy yeah. them quite frequently and they're delicious and i think you know what looping back to what you said of course yes i'm someone who's very physically active i try to you know have a balanced diet i try to sleep well i'm very privileged in the sense that i have access and education and like i said we'll talk about costs in a little bit but i think it's interesting that also you mentioned weight and saying people People living with obesity or living with overweight but sometimes we look at that as maybe like the defining outcome of health which as we know mm. is not the only one so for people who might say oh well i'm slim and oh yeah i'm, I'm running or i go to the gym or people might assume that oh well you can eat ultra processed food and it's not bad for you because they're slim when actually as we know it probably impacts things like sleep or brain fog concentration gut gut health so yeah i suppose with the ultra processed foods if let's say someone's diet is like 50 50 they say yeah 50 percent of the time i mean whole foods but half the time because i'll be honest some days mine probably tips way more the other way so it might be that i've had a croissant in the morning instead of that banana it might be that i've had i don't know gone out for a tie and i love you know noodles and i've had i'm sure i've had you know spring rolls fried foods like loads of the foods yeah. are probably ultra processed and just because you're slim from the outward appearance someone says i'll oh, eat what you want surely there's more to consider than just the size of our waistline
4: That is definitely true, and the the science is very clear. When we look at, say, the risk of early death, um, so the the most important outcome of all, arguably, it's an it's When we look at the statistics of the data, it's independent of weight gain. I.e., exactly as you say, if someone like you, who is you know young and active and doesn't have a genetic predisposition to obesity, we we don't imagine um, if you eat a very high ultra processed food diet, which many fit young athletic people do, you are still putting yourself at risk of, at increased risk of all those diet related diseases. And this may affect different uh, minority group populations uh, differently. So particularly in South America or in in migrant populations in the UK, we might see different risks for metabolic disease like type two diabetes, for example. And so we could have someone who was slim, but because of their diet, was massively increasing their their risk of a, a disease for which they have already have a genetic propensity.
5: Perfectionism is a personality characteristic that I think a lot of people listening can I identify with. Um, it's the most common answer to that dreaded interview question: "What's your biggest weakness?" Oh, I'm, I'm a total perfectionist and in many ways this is a kind of indicative of a sort of cultural um, perception I suppose that perfectionism is our our favorite flaw and although these are kind of amusing anecdotes we can point to my research is actually showing that perfectionism is indeed becoming more common um, it's risen by about 40% since the late 1980s um, but as I talk about in the book this is not necessarily something to celebrate because I think we're quite mistaken if we think perfectionism is healthy or positive um, because at root, it's a form of deficit thinking. So it comes from a sense that we're not enough um, and that we need to be perfect or at least appear perfect um, in our daily lives. So it's about hiding and trying to conceal our shortcomings and. Um, and as a consequence, it can be linked to a whole host of psychological difficulties. Um, so perfectionism is is really something I think we can all identify with, but it might not necessarily be the kind of positive thing we think it is.
0: Mm. So yeah, it's pretty complex. But looping back to what you said about job interview questions, because you're right, I'm sure a lot of people will probably think that is a good thing to say to a potential employer. Oh, I'm an absolute perfectionist, because they might assume that means they're inferring that they're going to work really hard, they're going to go the extra mile, they're going to you know pay attention to detail, they're never going to miss anything. So for the employer, maybe they're thinking, oh great, this person's a perfectionist, they're going to work their butts off. So why is it that we yeah why is it that we think that it's a positive thing when it comes to output? and when it comes to our work?
5: I think a society celebrates perfection. I think in, in, in modern society, and we have a very hyper-competitive world. There's a lot of pressure to excel in school and college and in the workplace. And of course, social media as well puts... A lot of pressure on people to live up to really high and in in many cases unattainable ideals so the whole world that we're living right now is kind of focused around hyper functioning hyper uh, competitiveness and i think that that really seeps down into our own psychology and we think that our employers uh looking for nothing but perfection we think that society looks for nothing for but perfection either and and when you know we see perfection and perfection all around us it's quite natural quite understandable logical that we would give off a sense that uh, we will go above and beyond. We will sac- sacrifice ourselves. We will shoot for excessively high standards uh, in our roles because we think that's what other people are looking for. So for, for me, it's, we radiate perfection because the world radiates perfection. And I don't think it's any surprise. And I, and I think it's completely uh, understandable that we, that we kind of project our personalities in that way
0: yeah um i guess as the as the eternal optimist that I am and someone who definitely you know I read a lot and talk a lot about high performance so about you know optimization and not necessarily to this standard as you're describing of you know a, a unreachable extreme kind of perfection, but encouraging myself and others to think how can we yeah optimize and and improve things and and iterate things but is there i suppose some upside to perfectionism is there any times um, in our lives when it can be beneficial or is it always detrimental
5: so i think there's really this is a really important question one i try to deal with in my book to 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 make a distinction between perfectionism and other things that are absolutely positive so i think the, the the kind of blind faith we put in perfectionism right now is misplaced because one of the things you you hear when you talk to perfectionists and particularly perfectionists that are really struggling so perfectionists perhaps that go to therapy or perfectionists that uh perfectionistic students perhaps have come to me and ask for for help is is that they they feel like the perfectionism is the one thing that's holding them up in the world when everything else seems to be collapsing around them it's my perfectionism is what's keeping me going it's pushing me forward it's helping me to succeed and I think we need to we need to understand that perfectionism isn't doing those things. That actually, it's the orchestrator of those things. Is what's creating those difficulties in the first place? Because as I mentioned before, it's this deficit thinking that ke- that keeps concealing, hiding, grinding, uh, pushing forward in a way that shows other people that we're perfect and nothing but perfect. And that is rather different for example, to things like conscientiousness or meticulousness, traits that we often confuse perfectionism with, which are active and optimistic ways of striving that are rooted in things like excellence and doing our level best. Okay, that is very different to perfectionist because conscientious people, people who are meticulous, they can let things go when things aren't quite right. Perfectionists can't let things go when they aren't quite right because the fear and social judgment of social judgment is so extreme that they will continue to hide continue to conceal continue to push themselves well beyond comfort because the consequence of not doing so is is so difficult psychologically so we need to make a a very clear distinction between perfections on the one hand which is extremely negative and other more positive traits that you alluded to in in your question there which are rooted in things like conscientiousness diligence meticulousness um, because i think that's really important to understanding uh, why perfection is so mm. damaging and why other uh, there are other more healthier ways to strive.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really interesting as a parent, you know, I'm listening to that as well and thinking about how you know, how we parent and our parenting styles and how I think, you know, often people will say that if you're a perfectionist, you know, it's because your parents were perfectionists or they expected perfection from you and maybe they forced you to do things or, you know, maybe 99% wasn't good enough. I I remember a friend actually telling me that, you know, if he got 99%, he he joked that it's from an Indian family and his uh, parents had very high expectations academically for him and his siblings. And he would joke that if he got 99% on the test, it would be not good enough. Um, Whereas I'm sure in other households, 99% would have been celebrated. Um, so yeah i guess for any parents listening if they're thinking oh yeah you know i want my children to strive to achieve their best i want them to be conscientious and diligent but am i gonna yeah am i putting too much pressure on them is this going to cause perfectionism traits in them if i how do how do parents find that balance
5: well again it goes back to that distinction between perfectionists coming from a sense of deficit from a sense of lack from this idea that if you don't get perfection then there is something wrong with you like there's something wrong if i don't uh, get a hundred percent then i'm i'm flawed in some way i think that is a very important start uh, way to start uh, to, to think about perfection as a starting point because then you can begin to Think, think Well, you know okay how do we interact with our kids in a way that avoids instilling these kind of deficit feelings well the the, the most important way for me is unconditional love and attention uh, and affection sorry uh, even when things have gone wrong so what we what we see with uh, warm and unconditionally uh, affectionate parenting is that parents who will congratulate children when they've done well praise their effort uh, but also when things haven't gone quite right still praise effort love and provide unconditional affection because this in this way young people and children in particular don't get a sense that their whole sense of self and their sense of self-esteem is tied to how well they're doing uh, in the eyes of other people because if there's unconditionality in as as in terms of love and affection then children have a much help build a much healthier uh, approach to striving which basically says okay well even if I if I succeed or if I don't succeed, the most important thing is that I tried. The most important thing is that I, I can learn and develop from this experience, and that my sense of worth in the world is not tied to those outcomes. Um, I can get a sense of pride. I can get a sense of self-esteem from. In, in, you know in putting myself in positions where i'm working hard and I'm, I'm i'm doing tests and exams and i'm getting results back and i'm getting information about how i'm doing but my self esteem isn't tied to the outcomes of those of those outcomes and I, I think for parents that's a really really crucial thing to bear in mind when you're communicating with your kids about exam scores uh, performances and things like sports or music or whatever it might be is that no matter how things turn out it's so, so important to be supportive and unconditionally affectionate because those things will break, will, will create um, much healthier ways of striving and avoid perfectionistic tendencies creeping into young people's lives.